0: Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V dot making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida, and by... Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willets. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory and by best-selling Christian author Jacqueline Brown. Get a free audio copy of her award-winning novel, The Light. Who do you become when the world falls away? Get the book at sqpn.com slash the light. Appropriate for mature teens and adults. Learn more at Jacqueline-Brown.com. You're listening to episode 167 of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Son of Sam killings. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, stick around to the end of the episode. We're going to have your feedback on our recent episodes on Nostradamus and on Gloria Ramirez, the so called toxic woman. But first, In 1976, a terrifying series of crimes began in New York City. Young couples and women with long, dark hair were being shot, apparently at random. They were being shot with 44 caliber bullets, so the press dubbed their attacker the 44 caliber killer. Soon, however, the killer gave himself a new name, the Son of Sam. In August of 1977, 44 years ago this month, David Berkowitz was arrested for the crimes the press began reporting that he'd been given his orders to kill by a 6,000-year-old spirit in a dog named Sam. Berkowitz confessed to the crimes, but doubt remains about whether he was the only person involved. What happened in the Son of Sam crimes? Who is David Berkowitz? And did he really act alone? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So Jimmy, what do we need to say to begin?
1: Today, we're dealing with a true crime mystery involving multiple murders. So as always, we will be keeping the discussion clinical and we won't be dwelling on gory or sensationalistic details. However, some listeners may be sensitive and parents in particular should be prudent in making decisions for their families. Because of the complexity of this case, it'll need to be a two-parter. But then we'll be back to the more typical type of episodes the week after because I don't like to do true crime too often.
0: Okay. Jimmy, do you have any kind of personal connection to this story?
1: son of Sam is the first serial killer that I really remember hearing about on the news I was alive in the late 1960s at the time of the Manson family murders which we talked about in episode 54 and also the zodiac murders which we'll talk about in the future but I was too young to be aware of those or remember them however I was approaching my teenage years when the son of Sam was active in the mid-1970s and I definitely remember hearing about the shootings on the news I remember how terrified people in New York were and I remember when the serial killer was caught.
0: So let's set the stage for today's mystery by talking about New York City itself. What was New York City like in the mid-1970s?
1: It was a chaotic time for the nation as a whole. People were coming off the craziness of the 1960s and the Vietnam War. By 1976, we'd come through the Watergate scandal, which we talked about all the way back in Episode 7. There was a lot of civil unrest at the time, and trust of the government and government institutions hit new lows. We talked about some of that in Episodes 107 and 108 on the famous burglary that exposed secrets the FBI was trying to keep hidden. Culturally, the hippie movement had faded in intensity, but also had become semi-mainstream. The hot new sound was disco music, and people were doing disco dances like The Hustle. And dance clubs, known as discotheques, were extremely popular. One of the most famous was New York City's Studio 54. At these discotheques, people would not only dance, drink, and socialize, they'd also do drugs, including the hot new substance cocaine, which was experiencing a burst of popularity. Some of the people it was popular with were the Not Ready for Primetime Players, the initial cast of Saturday Night Live, which had its first season in 1975, just before our story starts. And it was indeed filmed live from New York on Saturday night. The Twin Towers of the World Trade Center, meanwhile, were completed in 1973, and they were a hub of economic activity, and they would be a familiar part of the city's skyline until they were destroyed on on September 11th, 2001. But in addition to all these things, New York City was facing severe problems.
0: Wikipedia notes, by 1970, the city gained notoriety for high rates of crime and other social disorders. The city's subway system was regarded as unsafe due to crime and suffered frequent mechanical breakdowns. Prostitutes and pimps frequented Times Square, while Central Park became feared as the site of muggings homeless persons, and drug dealers occupied bordered up and abandoned buildings. The New York City Police Department was subject to investigation for widespread corruption, most famously in the 1971 testimony of whistleblowing police officer Frank Serpico. In June 1975, a coalition of labor unions distributed a pamphlet to arriving visitors warning them to stay away.
1: The city also is struggling with problems caused by severe financial mismanagement.
0: In February 1975, New York City entered a serious fiscal crisis. Under Mayor Abraham Beam, the city had run out of money to pay for normal operating expenses, was unable to borrow more, and faced the prospect of defaulting on its obligations and declaring bankruptcy. The city admitted an operating deficit of at least $600 million, though the actual total city debt was more than $11 billion, and the city was unable to borrow money from the credit markets. There were numerous reasons for the crisis, including overly optimistic forecasts of revenues, underfunding of pensions, use of capital expenditures for operating costs, and poor budgetary and accounting practices. The city government was reluctant to confront municipal labor unions. The state of New York also passed a state law that created an emergency financial control board to monitor the city's finances, required the city to balance its budget within three years and required the city to follow accepted accounting practices. The Emergency Financial Control Board was a state agency, and city officials had only two votes on the seven-member board. The board took full control of the city's budget. It made drastic cuts in municipal services and spending, cut city employment, froze salaries, and raised bus and subway fares. The level of welfare spending was cut. Some hospitals were closed, as were some branch libraries, and fire stations. But the city was still a financial mess and
1: was heading towards defaulting on its loans. City officials were desperate and sought a bailout from the federal government. But President Gerald R. Ford didn't want to simply let the city officials off the hook for their financial mismanagement. When he declined to give them a bailout on the terms they requested, the New York Daily News ran a famous headline which said, Ford to city, drop dead.
0: But after further negotiation, he eventually did grant a bailout. Ford later signed the New York City Seasonal Financing Act of 1975, a congressional bill that extended $2.3 billion worth of federal loans to the city for three years. In return, Congress ordered the city to increase charges for city services, to cancel a wage increase for city employees, and to drastically reduce the number of people in its workforce. So, yeah, it was a crazy time in New
1: York City. And as we turn the corner from 1975 into 1976, we enter the bicentennial year. And this was a big deal all across America, as I well remember. The Bicentennial was the 200th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. So there were big patriotic celebrations all across the United States. And that included a big celebration of 16 tall ships in New York Harbor on July 4th, Independence Day. Later that same month, from July 12th to 15th, the Democratic National Convention was held at Madison Square Garden in New York City, and it nominated future president Jimmy Carter and his running mate Walter Mondale. That brings us to the beginning of today's mystery. And how will we be covering this mystery? To get the basic facts on the table, we need to look briefly at eight attacks that took place between July 1976 and July 1977, a period of just over a year. We will not be dwelling on unpleasant details, but we'll be sticking just to the basic facts along with key information that will be important going forward. Initially, I was going to tell this story using sound clips from 1970s news programs, but... They tended to be more sensationalistic and scarier, and I didn't want to put the listeners through that, even though it would make it more emotionally compelling. The fact is, situations of this type are extremely rare, and the vast majority of people don't have to worry about things like this happening to them or anybody at all they know. And I wanted to keep the emotional temperature low and as non fearful as possible, so I decided to stick with a minimal bare facts coverage of the events stripped of the emotional side of things. Before we get started, though, we should mention the geography of New York City for those who aren't familiar with it. New York has five geographical divisions known as boroughs, the Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. Of the eight attacks, two occurred in the Bronx, five occurred in Queens, and one occurred in Brooklyn. Also, you'll be glad to hear that not everybody died. In fact, about half the people involved
0: survived. Okay, let's begin then. When was the first attack? It
1: took place at 1.10 a.m. on Thursday, July 29th, 1976, so right at the end of July. Two young women who were neighbors had just gotten home from a attack, and they were sitting in their car talking. One was Donna Loria, an 18-year-old medical technician, and the other was her 19-year-old friend Jody Valenti, who was a nurse. A man with a gun attacked them both. Donna Loria was killed, but Jody Valenti survived. Afterwards, Jody gave a description of the killer to the police, who summarized it as follows.
2: Male, white, 30s, five foot a 160 pounds, curly, dark hair, mod style, clean-shaven, light complexion, wearing a blue polo shirt with white stripes, dark pants.
1: Others also reported a man of similar description sitting in a yellow compact car before the shooting. Also, ballistics showed that the weapon he used was a 44 caliber Bulldog revolver. And for people who may not be familiar with guns, 44s are large caliber guns, meaning the bullets are wide, almost 11 millimeters wide. A revolver is a type of handgun that has a revolving cylinder into which you fit the bullets rather than putting them into a removable clip. And a bulldog is a type of revolver made by the Charter Arms Company. It features a revolving cylinder that holds five or six rounds of ammunition, so they are either five shooters or six shooters, and then you need to reload. But the key parts we need to remember are the fact that the attacker had dark curly hair And we also need to remember the yellow compact car. Okay, what about the second attack? It took place three months later on October 23rd. The people involved were Rosemary Keenan, an 18-year-old college student, and her boyfriend, Carl DeNaro, a 20-year-old security guard. They also were sitting in a car when someone shot at them. Both survived, but neither saw the attacker. Once again, the attacker used 44 caliber bullets, but the police at this point did not realize the attacks were connected.
0: What happened in the third attack?
1: It took place a month later on November 27th. The people involved were Donna DeMassi, a 16-year-old high school student, and her friend Joanne Lamino, an 18-year-old high school student. They had returned home after midnight from a movie, and they were sitting on the porch talking. A man approached them and shot them with a 44. Both survived, but Lamino was paralyzed by the attack. In his book, The Ultimate Evil, author Maury Terry summarizes the girl's description of the attacker this way.
2: He was dressed in what appeared to be a green, form-fitting, three-quarter length coat, perhaps an army fatigue jacket. He was slim, about 150 to 160 pounds, and stood about five feet eight. His hair was longish, straight, parted, and dirty blonde in color. His eyes were a piercing dark brown.
1: For our purposes, it is important to note that the attacker had straight hair that was dirty blonde and parted. Still, the police did not connect the crimes.
0: And what happened in attack number four? We now move forward two months
1: and turn the corner into 1977. At 1240 a.m. on January 30th, the next attack occurred. The people involved were John Deal, a 30-year-old bartender, and his fiancée, Christine Freund, a 26-year-old secretary. They were sitting in his car after seeing the boxing movie Rocky, which was then in theaters. When they were attacked, Deal drove the car away to escape, but Christine had been fatally wounded and died. Neither saw the attacker, but the police now recognized a pattern in the attacks. They all involved a forty-four caliber gun. They all took place late at night. The victims did not know their attacker, who seemed to strike without motive. And the attacks seemed to involve young women with long dark hair, although that would later prove to be an illusion. However, because the two eyewitness descriptions that different witnesses had offered didn't match up. When the police released the composite drawings to the news, they carried a caption that read,
0: police sketches of suspects in Lomino Damasi shooting in Queens and slaying in the Bronx last year.
1: Notice the use of the plural, police sketches of suspects. And then what happened in the fifth attack? It took place just over a month later on March 8th. This time, the attack Took place much earlier in the evening at 7:30 p.m. Virginia Voskarichian, a 19-year-old college student, was walking home when she was shot with a 44 and killed. A witness saw the killer fleeing the scene, and Maury Terry indicates the attacker was described as follows:
0: the person looked to be only about 16 to 18 years of age, was stockily built, clean-shaven, and wore a ski jacket or sweater and a cap, which was either brown or blue and striped. He appeared to be about five feet seven. In this case, the attacker was described as much younger than in the previous cases.
1: Here, the attacker was said to be 16 to 18 years old, whereas previously, the attacker was said to be in his 30s in attack number one. Other witnesses had also seen another man lurking around the area, and the police commissioner indicated they
0: wanted to talk to him. He was described this way in the New York Times. The commissioner gave the following description of a person wanted for questioning in the murders. Male, white, between 25 and 30 years of age, between 5 feet 10 inches and 6 feet tall, medium build, well-groomed, with dark hair combed straight back.
1: So the second man was 25 to 30 and had dark hair combed straight back. Also, it was at this time that people started referring to the attacks as being committed by the 44 caliber killer. Press coverage of the crimes increased nationally and globally, with papers like the Vatican's L'Osservatore Romano and the Soviet Union's Izvestia covering them. This was the point at which my memories of the case start to kick in, with the connection of the crimes, the increased national press coverage, and the use of the name the forty-four caliber killer. I remember this period before the arrest was made, when I was a preteen in Arkansas watching the news on TV. Because the attack seemed to involve women with long dark hair, many in the press were speculating that the 44 caliber killer had some kind of grudge against such women, that he hated them and was taking out his rage on them. And when was attack number six? Just over a month later, at 3 a.m. on April 17th, the people involved were Alexander Esau, a 20-year-old tow truck driver, and Valentina Suriani, an 18-year-old college student. They were sitting in a car when both were shot with a 44 and killed. This time, the killer left a letter at the scene of the crime. It was handwritten, mostly in capital letters, and it was addressed to NYPD Captain Joseph It also included what looked like deliberate misspellings, such as spelling women, W-E-M-O-N, wemon instead of women. This use of deliberate misspellings echoes the Zodiac Killer, who had done something similar in his letters just a few years before, as we'll discuss in the future. The letter in this case read,
0: Dear Captain Joseph Borelli, I am deeply hurt by your calling me a wemon hater. I am not but I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. Behind our house some rest. Mostly young, raped and slaughtered, their blood drained, just bones now. Papa Sam keeps me locked in the attic too. I can't get out, but I look out the attic window and watch the world go by. I feel like an outsider. I am on a different wavelength than everybody else, programmed to kill. However, to stop me, you must kill me. Attention all police, shoot me first. Shoot to kill or else. Keep out of my way or you will die. Papa Sam is old now. He needs some blood to preserve his youth. He has had too many heart attacks, too many heart attacks. Ugh, me hoot, it hurts, sonny boy. I miss my pretty princess most of all. "'She's resting in our lady's house, but I'll see her soon. "'I am the monster, Beelzebub, the chubby behemoth. "'I love to hunt, prowling the streets looking for fair game, tasty meat. "'The women of queens are the prettiest of all. "'I must be the water they drink. "'I live for the hunt, my life, blood for papa. "'Mr. Borelli, sir, I don't want to kill any more, no, sir. "'No more, but I must. "'Honor thy father.' I want to make love to the world. I love people. I don't belong on earth. Return me to yahoos. To the people of Queens, I love you. And I want to wish all of you a happy Easter. May God bless you in this life and in the next. And for now, I say goodbye and good night. Police, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back. To be interpreted as bang, 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 bank, bang, ugh. Yours in murder, Mr. Monster. If you've
1: studied the Zodiac case, this letter really comes off as a somewhat less sophisticated version of what Zodiac was doing in terms of style. For our present purposes, there are a few things to note. The author expresses ambivalence. He both does and does not want to kill. He wants to be stopped and tells the police to stop him by shooting him dead. He denies hating women. He says he's driven to kill them by a figure named Sam, Sam is said to be a father as someone who is old and has had multiple heart attacks. Sam gets drunk, beats his family, ties them up behind the house, and locks them in the garage or attic. Sam commands the author to go and kill on his behalf to provide blood for Papa. Finally, he seems to implicitly reject the name that the press had given him by this time, the forty-four caliber killer. Instead, he names himself Son of Sam and Mr. Monster. This letter was dropped at the crime scene on April 17th, and six weeks later, on May 30th, another letter was received by Jimmy Breslin, who was a famous columnist for Newsday. On the back of the envelope, there were four lines, which read, blood and family, darkness and death, absolute depravity, and then at the bottom, point four four. The new letter itself read,
0: Hello from the gutters of NYC, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of NYC, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. Hello from the cracks in the sidewalks of NYC, and from the ants that dwell in these cracks and feed in the dried blood of the dead that has settled into the cracks. JB, that is Jimmy Breslin, I'm just dropping you a line to let you know that I appreciate your interest in those recent and horrendous 44 killings. I also want to tell you that I read your column daily, and I find it quite informative. Tell me, Jim, what will you have for July twenty-ninth? You can forget about me if you like, because I don't care for publicity. However, you must not forget Donna Loria, and you cannot let the people forget her either. She was a very, very sweet girl, but Sam's a thirsty lad, and he won't let me stop killing until he gets his fill of blood." Mr. Breslin, sir, don't think that because you haven't heard from me for a while that I went to sleep. No, rather I am still here, like a spirit roaming the night, thirsty, hungry, seldom stopping to rest, anxious to please Sam. I love my work. Now the void has been filled. Perhaps we shall meet face to face some day, or perhaps I will be blown away by cops with smoking thirty-eights. Whatever, if I shall be fortunate enough to meet you, I will tell you all about Sam if you like and I will introduce you to him. His name is Sam the Terrible. Not knowing what the future holds, I shall say farewell, and I will see you at the next job. Or should I say you will see my handiwork at the next job. Remember Ms. Loria. Thank you. In their blood and from the gutter, Sam's Creation 44. Here are some names to help you along. Forward them to the inspector for use by NCIC, that is the National Crime Information Center. The Duke of Death, the wicked King Wicker, the 22 disciples of hell, John Wheaties, rapist and suffocator of young girls. P.S. Please inform all the detectives working the slaying to remain. P.S. J.B. Please inform all the detectives working the case that I wish them the best of luck. Keep them digging, drive on, think positive, get off your butts, knock on coffins, etc. Upon my capture, I promised to buy all the guys working the case a new pair of shoes if I can get up the money. Son of Sam. Underneath the
1: signature was a strange symbol. It looked like an X with four other symbols drawn in the four quadrants marked out by the X. In the top quadrant, it had a cross, like a Christian cross. In the left quadrant, it had the female symbol, the circle with the cross or plus sign below it, also used for the planet Venus. In the right quadrant, it had the male symbol, the circle with the diagonal arrow pointing out of it, also used for the planet Mars. And in the bottom quadrant, it had what looked like the letter S. You can see the Son of Sam symbol in the artwork for this episode. The Jimmy Breslin letter also was noticeably different than the one at the crime scene. It was more literary and poetic and did not contain the kind of deliberate misspellings that the first one did. It also was much more neatly penned, so much so that the police suspected it may have been written by a professional calligrapher. And so they asked the employees at DC Comics that publishes Batman and Superman if they recognized the writing as coming from a letterer working in the comics industry. Despite the differences in the two letters, police believe this one came from someone with knowledge of the crimes. The question the author asked about what Jimmy Breslin would have for his July 29th column, as well as his references to possibly meeting Breslin, were taken as threats since July 29th was the one-year anniversary of the death of the first victim, Donna Loria. In the letter, the author also displays ambivalence about what will happen in the future, indicating that there will be more killings, but also saying he may be killed by the police, something he invited in the first letter, envisioning his capture and wishing the police the best of luck. He also gives several names to be forwarded to the FBI's National Crime Information Center to help, quote unquote, with the investigation. The Duke of Death, the Wicked King Wicker, the 22 Disciples of Hell, and John Wheaties, with Wheaties in quotation marks. And then finally, the author signed himself Son of Sam.
0: Did the names help with the investigation? Not really.
1: They resulted in hundreds of speculative tips being sent to the police, but none of them really helped.
0: Thus far, we've covered six of the eight attacks that occurred. So what happened in attack number seven? It took place a month later on
1: June 26th, 1977 at 3 a.m. The people involved were Sal Lupo, a 20-year-old mechanics helper, and Judy Placido, a 17-year-old high school graduate. They were sitting in Lupo's car in front of a discotheque when they were shot. Both survived, but neither saw the killer. A couple of weeks after this attack, on July 13th and 14th, another famous event in the history of New York City occurred.
2: The New York City area and its 10 million people were blacked out last night by an electrical power failure. While most New Yorkers were coping, thousands of others seized a chance to loot. A night illuminated by the flames of arsenic punctured by the laughter of looters, shattered by the crying of their victims. Thousands had taken to the streets in an orgy of looting and burning that shocked many of their neighbors. The cover of total darkness allowed the lowest qualities of previously peaceful people to surface.
1: The New York blackout of 1977 is still famous, and I remember hearing about it on the news.
0: And then what happened in the eighth and final attack?
1: It took place a month later on July 31st, 1977. The people involved were Robert Violante, a 20-year-old clothing store salesman, and Stacey Moskowitz, a 20-year-old secretary. They were sitting in Violante's car when they were attacked. Violante lost his left eye, and Moskowitz died. With this final attack, six people had been killed and seven wounded. But this time, the police got a solid lead. A few minutes before the shooting, a local woman named Cecilia Davis was walking her dog when she saw a police officer ticketing a car that was parked near a fire hydrant. Then a young man walked toward her from the area of the car and gave her a hard look. He also had some kind of dark object in his hand. They passed each other and moments later she heard the shooting taking place behind her. Mrs. Davis waited four days, but then she contacted the police and told them about this. That focused their attention on the cars that had been ticketed in the area that night.
0: What happened when they started following up on those
1: cars? One of the ticketed cars was a 1970 four-door yellow Ford Galaxy that belonged to a man named David Berkowitz. On August 10th, the police found the car parked outside Berkowitz's apartment and saw a duffel bag with the butt of a rifle sticking out of it. At the time, this was not illegal in New York. You did not need a special permit to own a rifle, and it wasn't illegal to leave one in your car, however stupid that might be. I'd never leave a gun visible in my car in a crime-ridden city, even if it was legal to do so. Police then searched the car without a search warrant, which was a stupid move because it could get all of the evidence thrown out in court. Inside the car, they found not only the rifle, but also ammunition, maps of the crime scenes of the Son of Sam attacks, and a letter addressed to the head of the Omega task force that was charged with catching Son of Sam. The letter threatened a future
0: attack. And now that they had these things, what did the police do next? Having screwed up by
1: illegally searching his car without a warrant, they decided to apply for a warrant. While that was in process, they also staked out the car and the apartment building where Berkowitz lived. And before they received any warrant at about 8.45 p.m., Berkowitz came down from his apartment holding a paper bag and got in his car. Two officers, including Detective John Philodico, then approached the car and pointed their guns at Berkowitz. It turned out that the paper bag contained a 44 caliber bulldog revolver and a conversation ensued which detective Philodico remembered this way.
0: Well, you got me.
1: Now that I've got you, who have I got? You know. No, I don't. You tell me. I'm Sam. You're Sam. Sam who? Sam David Berkowitz. At about 2 a.m., New York City Mayor Abraham Beam gave a press conference and then spoke with reporters.
2: I'm very pleased to announce that the people of the city of New York can rest easy this morning because of the fact that the police have captured a man whom they believe to be the son of Sam. I feel great. I think the police did a tremendous job, and they're the best police force in the whole world. You saw Son of Sam. He was brought in here. What feelings did you have? Well, I was a little surprised that uh, uh, I saw a person of his stature. He seemed to be a very uh, well-built, heavy person, and uh, he didn't resemble the recent set of sketches.
1: Remember that. Berkowitz didn't resemble the recent sketches of the
0: killer. And who was David Berkowitz?
1: He was a 24-year-old postal worker and former veteran. Soon afterwards, Berkowitz confessed to the attacks, all eight of them. He also made remarks that are somewhat unclear. Among other things, he referred to a dog that was owned by one of his former neighbors who was named Sam Carr, C-A-R-R, The dog was a black Labrador retriever, and its name was Harvey. He also alluded to a multi-thousand-year-old being called Sam who ordered him to kill. The way this was interpreted by the press, Berkowitz claimed the dog was possessed by this ancient spirit named Sam, and the dog gave him orders to kill. However, Berkowitz has since said that this was a misunderstanding, that he was really emotionally strung out, and while he did allude to the dog barking, and to the spirit named Sam, he did not claim that the spirit lived in the dog or that the dog ordered him to kill. But the idea that the dog was possessed by the spirit and gave him his orders is still one of the most famous things that the press reported about the case. What happened to Berkowitz after his arrest? On September 19th, he published a letter in the New York Post in which, among other things, he said things like, This is
0: all a plot. And... When I killed, I really saved many lives. You will understand later. People want my blood, but they don't want to listen to what I have to say. I am doomed now. My fate has already been decided. There are other sons out there. God help the world. That last statement about there being other sons was
1: ambiguous and could mean more than one thing, as we'll discuss in The Reason Perspective. And the fact that Berkowitz was in communication with the press led to a wave of public concern. People were worried that he might sell his story to a writer, publisher, or movie producer and start raking in big bucks their moral sensibilities were outraged by the thought that the killer might reap financial profit from his crimes. And so, the New York State Assembly passed a law to prevent this. Known as the Son of Sam Law, it was the first of its kind, and it served as a model for similar laws in other states. But there were potential problems with this type of law. As Wikipedia reports,
0: critics argued that the law infringed on freedom of speech and therefore violated the First Amendment. And that Son of Sam laws take away the financial incentive for many criminals to tell their stories, some of which, such as the Watergate scandal, were of vital interest to the general public. In 1987, lawyers for publishing company Simon and Schuster sued the New York authorities to prevent enforcement of the Son of Sam law with respect to a book they were about to publish called Wise Guy, written by Nicholas Pileggi. The book was about ex-mobster Henry Hill and was used as the basis for the film Goodfellas. The case reached the U.S. Supreme Court in 1991. In an 8 0 ruling, the court ruled the law unconstitutional. The majority opinion was that the law was over inclusive and would have prevented the publication of such works as The Autobiography of Malcolm X, Thoreau's Civil Disobedience, and even The Confessions of St. Augustine. After numerous revisions, New York adopted a new Son of Sam law in 2001. This law requires that victims of crimes be notified whenever a person convicted of a crime receives $10,000 U.S. or more from virtually any source. The law then attaches a springing statute of limitations, giving victims an extended period of time to sue the perpetrator of the crime in civil court for their crimes. This law also authorizes a state agency, the Crime Victims Board, to act on the victim's behalf in some limited circumstances. Thus far, the current New York law has survived court scrutiny. In certain cases, a Son of Sam law can be extended beyond the criminals themselves to include friends, neighbors, and family members of the lawbreaker who seek to profit by telling publishers and filmmakers of their relation to the criminal. In other cases, a person may not financially benefit from the sale of a story or any other mementos pertaining to the crime. And so, Son of Sam laws continue to exist in modified form. With the press reporting that Berkowitz got his orders from a demon dog, how did the court assess his sanity?
1: He had several evaluations, but the court found that he was competent to stand trial. And there's an interesting legal point that needs to be noted here competence to stand trial does not rule out an insanity defense, these are two different things. Competence to stand trial has to do with the accused's state of mind during the trial itself, not when the crime was committed. U.S. law holds that a person has a right to be able to understand the charges against him and their consequences, to understand what is happening during the trial, and to help with his own defense if a person is so out of it that he doesn't understand what's happening with the legal proceedings and can't help his lawyers with his defense, he can't be put on trial.
0: Does that mean he gets a get out of jail free card?
1: No. In the first place, somebody who is so mentally impaired that they're not competent to stand trial is not going to be released onto the street. They're going to be put in some kind of care facility. But second, lack of competence doesn't stop the trial from ever taking place. It just delays it. The prosecutors will still file charges. The court will order that the person be given psychological help so that they become competent to stand trial and then the trial can go forward. It's only in cases where a person is severely and permanently mentally handicapped, for example, in a case of mental retardation, let's say, that he's permanently incompetent for trial. But even in those cases, if the person is dangerous, he's not going to be let out onto the street. In any event, the court found Berkowitz competent for trial. He had enough understanding of the legal proceedings against him and the ability to help his lawyers with his defense.
0: If it's not the same thing as competence to stand trial, what's an insanity defense?
1: It has to do with the person's mental state at the time the crime was committed rather than during the trial. It's a lot harder to use an insanity defense than you might think. Merely being mentally ill is not enough. Mental illness comes in all kinds, from the very slight to the very severe. And courts are not going to let you off the hook just because you have nervous tics or depression or anger management issues or even delusions like having a demon dog that gives you orders to kill. If they accepted that as proof of insanity, every killer would simply make up some crazy story and they'd have an instant insanity defense. In fact, it's often speculated that when killers do make up crazy stories, they may be faking them in a mistaken belief that this will result in a successful insanity defense.
0: So what do you need to prove to be considered legally insane and use an insanity defense?
1: The specific requirements vary by jurisdiction in the United States, but to oversimplify it somewhat, you need to show that you did not know that society considers your actions wrong. And that society part is important because otherwise every criminal would say, well, I didn't know. I didn't think what I was doing was wrong. That's not the question. Did you know that society regards what you did as wrong? Either that, or you need to show that you just weren't in control of your actions. And both of those can be hard to prove. For example, if a criminal tries to hide his crimes or avoid being caught, That's evidence he knows. Society considers his actions criminal. As a result, only about 1% of felony cases even involve an insanity plea, and only about a quarter of those are successful. So only about 1 in 400 felony cases involves a successful insanity defense. And what about Berkowitz's case? His lawyers wanted him to try an insanity defense, but he didn't want to. As a result, when he appeared in court on May 8, 1978, He pled guilty to all of the shootings, thus avoiding the need for a jury trial. And at this appearance, something else was revealed. According to United Press International,
0: Bronx District Attorney Mario Marola told the court that defense attorneys Ira Juliak and Stern had recently informed him that Berkowitz had admitted committing over 2,000 arsons in the city. Marola said that he had been given a copy of a diary in which Berkowitz listed the fires, the time they were set, the way the fire department had responded, and even the weather conditions. The DA said Berkowitz told his attorneys he would call the fire department to report the fires and use the name the Phantom of the Bronx. So it appeared that
1: Berkowitz had an extensive career as an arsonist also, and that he had extensively documented it in a way that could be checked against fire department records. Though, as far as I can tell, this didn't play much of a further role in the story as he was going to go to jail for the murders.
0: Was Berkowitz facing the death penalty? A lot of people,
1: including family members of the victims, thought that he should, but he wasn't. In 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court declared the death penalty unconstitutional, meaning it contradicts the terms of the Constitution. And that was a clear case of judicial activism. This was the ruling that saved the convicted Manson family members from being put to death. The ruling was deeply divided, with the justices split five to four, and even the justices voting for unconstitutionality disagreed among themselves on why it was supposed to be unconstitutional. Regardless of whether you support or oppose the death penalty, the ruling that the death penalty was against the terms of the U.S. Constitution was ridiculous on its face because the text of the Constitution, specifically the Fifth Amendment, expressly envisions the possibility of a person being deprived of life after he has received due process of law. So whether you favor the death penalty or not— the Constitution clearly allows for it. As a result, the court essentially overruled itself four years later, and in 1976, it announced that the death penalty was constitutional, provided that states implement new laws and sentencing procedures. That was before the son of Sam Killings took place, so the death penalty was possible in principle at this time. However, New York State did not revise its laws and reinstate the death penalty until 1995, almost 20 years later. As a result, Berkowitz was never going to face the death penalty. He was going to be sentenced years before that again became an available punishment in New York. So what happened at his sentencing? The sentencing was scheduled for May 22nd, but something unusual took place. In New York City, David Berkowitz was supposed to be sentenced today for the
2: son of Sam killings. He wasn't. Robert Hager tells us why. There was no hint of trouble to come as Berkowitz was driven to court in an armored van. But once inside, a struggle broke out on the seventh floor. Berkowitz said he didn't want to be sentenced. He kicked and bit some of five officers trying to move him. At one point, he lunged toward a glass window. Two officers were hurt, but not seriously, before Berkowitz was finally subdued. But when Berkowitz was brought in, it was evident he was still agitated, wild-eyed, in handcuffs, and then he stunned the court, shouting repeatedly, Stacy was a whore, I'd kill her again. Mrs. Moskowitz was on her feet, screaming back, you animal. Violante shouted, you should be killed, you creep, and collapsed, sobbing, his father comforting him. Guards forced Berkowitz back out of court. Judge Joseph Corso started to postpone sentencing another three weeks when there was a new outburst. It's not justice, screamed a friend of the Moskowitzes. How much can the families take? I really couldn't control myself. Uh, Anybody with... any heart at all, any emotions. wouldn't have been able to control themselves either, what he said. And I
0: am very angry that it was even permitted to happen.
1: The court then ordered another psychiatric evaluation, and on July 12th, Berkowitz finally was sentenced.
2: Three judges from different boroughs of New York heaped a total of 275 years in prison on Berkowitz. Under state law, he could conceivably be paroled in 25 years, but the judges recommended he spend the rest of his life behind bars. As court closed, Judge William Kapelman looked at Berkowitz and told him, you grovel in the very depths of human degradation.
1: He was then placed in the custody of the Sing Sing Correctional Facility and several others before going to the Attica Correctional Facility, a supermax prison in upstate New York. Subsequently, he was transferred, though he remains in prison today. Today, he is in the Shawangunk Correctional Facility in Ulster County.
0: Has anything of note happened since Berkowitz was put in prison?
1: Yes, several things have. The next year, in 1979, another inmate tried to kill Berkowitz, slashing the left side of his neck from front to back. The slash required more than 50 stitches to close, and it left an obvious permanent scar that you'll see in any interview with him. Berkowitz has never identified the inmate who cut him and has said that it represented a form of justice for, quote, the punishment I deserve.
0: Does that indicate that Berkowitz has taken moral responsibility for his crimes? It does. And
1: in 1987, Berkowitz became a born-again Christian. He thus renounced the Son of Sam identity and refers to himself today as the Son of Hope to acknowledge what Jesus has done for him. He's become active in prison ministry to other prisoners. And through evangelical associates on the outside, he has an official website called org. On the website,
0: he has a section titled My Apology, in which he says, As I have communicated many times throughout the years, I am deeply sorry for the pain, suffering, and sorrow I have brought upon the victims of my crimes. I grieve for those who are wounded and for the family members of those who lost a loved one because of my selfish actions. I regret what I've done and I'm haunted by it. Not a day goes by that I do not think about the suffering I have brought to so many. Likewise, I cannot even comprehend all the grief and pain they live with now, and these individuals have every right to be angry with me too. Nevertheless, I apologize for the crimes I committed. My continual prayer is that, as much as is possible, these hurting individuals can go on with their lives. In addition, I am not writing this apology for pity or sympathy. I simply believe that such an apology is the right thing to do, and by the grace of God, I hope to do my very best to make amends whenever and wherever possible, both to society and to my victims. In this respect, Berkowitz is like several members of the Manson family,
1: such as Tex Watson and Susan Atkinson, who also became Christians and apologized for
0: what they did. What about the possibility that Berkowitz would be paroled one day? He would
1: become eligible for parole in 25 years, though the judges who sentenced him recommended that he spend the rest of his life in prison. His first parole hearing was scheduled for 2002, and state law mandated a new hearing every two years after that. When the 2002 hearing was coming up, Berkowitz wrote a letter to the New York Governor George Pataki asking that the hearings be canceled. He wrote,
0: In all honesty, I believe that I deserve to be in prison for the rest of my life. I have, with God's help, long ago come to terms with my situation, and I have accepted my punishment. However,
1: state law required that the hearings go ahead, so they did. And at that first hearing and all subsequent hearings, Berkowitz has been denied parole. The most recent hearing was scheduled for 2020, but was delayed due to the COVID pandemic. Berkowitz seems serious about having accepted his punishment. He has never asked to be released, and he sometimes skips the parole hearings altogether. And so, he remains in jail to this day, still pursuing his prison ministry and trying to bring his fellow inmates to Jesus. The question is, how much more to the story is there than what the public is aware of? Specifically, even though David Berkowitz confessed to killing all six people was he actually lying about this?
0: And we'll get to the theories right after I take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Kathleen M., Patricia N., Eric K., Anthony C., and John M. Their generous donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com. Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church. By Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by best-selling Christian author Jacqueline Brown. Get a free audio copy of her award-winning novel, The Light. Who do you become when the world falls away? Get the book at sqpn.com slash The Light, appropriate for mature teens and adults. Learn more at Jacqueline-Brown.com. So, Jimmy, what theories are there about the Son of Sam killings?
1: I'm not aware of anyone who thinks that David Berkowitz was completely innocent, but that's a possibility we should consider just for the sake of completeness. The conventional view is that he perpetrated all the attacks and that he acted alone. So we'll also definitely consider that. But then there's another view, which is that he was involved in the attacks, but he did not act alone. Other people were involved, too. And if other people were involved, what was really going on? Finally, from the faith perspective, what should we make of the claim that a spirit was ordering him to perpetrate these crimes?
0: So, Jimmy, as we come to a close with this episode, what is your preliminary bottom line on the Son of Sam killings? I think that the
1: Son of Sam crimes were horrific. I think that David Berkowitz was involved and definitely committed some of them. But I also think that we need to give serious consideration to the theories we've just named. Right, Jimmy, what are your further resources on this mystery? We'll have links to Maury Terry's book, The Ultimate Evil, also a Netflix documentary called Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness, which is actually more about Maury Terry and his obsession with this case than about Berkowitz himself. We'll have links to articles on David Berkowitz, Son of Sam Laws, David Berkowitz's official website. Some lost tapes, 1970s news coverage on YouTube that you can watch. Also a UPI story on the guilty pleas, in his own words, interviews in video format, a CBN interview in text format. History of New York City in the 1970s, a couple of inside edition interviews with David Berkowitz from 1993, also one from 1999, a Larry King interview from 1999, and an article that whose significance will become apparent next week. The article is on the Celtic holiday,
0: Samhain. Very good. Very good. I look forward to concluding our discussion of this mystery next time. But let's get to our mysterious feedback that we've received from listeners, and we'll start with the feedback we received on our episode on Nostradamus. Joseph sent in this email. Despite the fact that I've watched numerous documentaries over the years, Mysterious World podcast still informed me of aspects on Nostradamus of which I have never learned before. I've often commented on the fact that television documentaries, namely ones dealing with mystery, continuously recycle the topics like Bigfoot and UFOs, but never give a solid conclusion. It seems after all these years there'd be new information or new conclusions. This tends to leave me as a viewer somewhat frustrated. On the other hand, we now have Mysterious World, which injects a reasoned perspective into these topics. This is done almost to a fault. I will have to admit that after some episodes, I'm left somewhat disappointed. Please take the following as a sideways compliment of a job well done, if not too well done. Reason is applied so well that the bubble, which is the thrill of the mystery, sometimes burst. The childhood wonder is sometimes swept away by the logic applied. With that being said, I love Mysterious World. Don't change a thing. Jimmy and Dom do a great job. Thank
1: you very much, Joseph. And I sympathize and and appreciate what you have to say. It's true that it's really fun and interesting to think about, you know, these various mysterious possibilities. But then when you apply reason to them, Oh, sometimes it's not as mysterious in the end once you realize what's going on. On the other hand, sometimes the true solution comes out of the blue, like in the the Gloria Ramirez case that we'll talk about in just a few moments. OK, mysterious, bizarre chemical reaction. Yeah, OK, well, that would be interesting to think about. But whoa, true crime, someone in the hospitals cooking meth. That's, you know, that's that's actually, to me, a kind of satisfying explanation. But I do agree that I don't want to I don't want Mysterious World to be a show that just focuses on mysteries where we have a clear, rational explanation. I think very carefully about the mix of the mysteries we're covering so that some of them do have rational explanations, but others are more mysterious than that. And sometimes the exotic explanations are the true ones. So I, I really try to keep a mix of those things. So you never know from one week to another exactly uh, what type of mystery we're going to have until, you know, I announce it.
0: Yeah, I love the mix. We have ones like the National Hotel or the Cuttingly Ferries where we have some either Very good guesses or a definite answer. But then there's the Sphere, for instance, which is still Mm. fascinating and a mystery. And, you know, who knows if we'll ever find out what really happened. So I think that is a great mix. Paul sends a message on Facebook. He said, fascinating episode. Nostradamus's true skill was not in his prophetic work. His true genius was in his marketing. A man writes cautionary cryptic poetry with no clear meaning for generations to come. To do so and then be the subject of other people's scholarly work is masterful public relations. And I
1: agree, Paul. Uh, Nostradamus was a genius marketer.
0: <laughs> on the Steve Jobs level. Lil Wayne writes on YouTube, Nostradamus predicted Jimmy Aiken would do this show.
1: Yes. Yes, yeah. he did.
0: Yes. Quatrain 989. credo dm on youtube writes fascinating episode glad it's a two-parter however whenever i read or listen to anything on nostradamus the russian mystic rasputin always pops into my mind too Well, uh,
1: Credo DM, you'll be glad to know that lately I have been doing research in preparation for an episode on Rasputin. I don't know exactly when it will drop. I would certainly within the next year, I would think. But um, I don't know exactly when again, because I've got to kind of carefully mix the different types of mysteries.
0: C.R. Wise on YouTube writes, not going to lie, I'm creeped out a little. His last prophecy of 1999 July was the month and year I was born. And it said that's when a king of terror would come down.
1: Yeah, fortunately, the king of terror part is a mistranslation as has now been established. So you don't got to worry.
0: Okay, because I was a little worried that CR Wise might be the king of terror. (laughs) If if
1: If he was, he wouldn't be wise to
0: tell us about it. Exactly. Mike on YouTube writes, like all seers, he has no predictive ability. The generalized nonsense they write or speak can be open to any interpretation. Our weather and climate profits can be seen in the same way. The historical information was excellent. Nothing interests me more than knowing how people lived in the past. So much like us, it's too easy to dismiss them. I know it sounds like I just did. I love how his largest concern was remaining faithful and his willingness to work to take care of his large family,
1: yeah, I agree with mike i I find Nostradamus a fascinating figure just from a historical perspective. I think he's likable. I think he's sincere in the main. and even though I don't think he had really good predictive abilities, he's just a a fascinating and likable guy. I would say though, that i I wouldn't say that all seers have no predictive ability. There are the biblical prophets, for example, and parapsychology indicates that there is uh, some statistical support for the idea of of humans having precognitive ability at times, even if it's not a particularly strong or reliable form of it. There is a statistical argument, at least, to be made there.
0: Yes, check out the episodes on remote viewing for more on that. Steve Numerator writes on YouTube, I see the signs and feel the call an oracle to proclaim. In days to come, an inquisitive bearded one shall seek knowledge, then don his hat and boots to call the delicate dance of faith and reason a mystery to explore as for the truth he shoots. Thanks, Jimmy and Dom, for another great episode. I predict there will be more of the same in the future. Thank you,
1: and uh, I appreciate the vote of confidence, and I also appreciate the Nostradamus-like quatrain.
0: Very good. And now for some feedback on our episode on Gloria Ramirez, The Toxic Woman. Uh, David sent an email just to say, great episode. I was vaguely aware of this case, but your episode was really informative. I'm left feeling great sympathy for her family. Bad enough to lose a loved one, but to have her splash across the media as The Toxic Woman is horrendous. Yeah, I I agree,
1: and I'm glad that we were able to uh, humanize Gloria's story and give a different perspective than she's this bizarre woman with weird stuff going on in her body. Actually, no, she was a victim. So I was pleased to be able to present that side of things. I was even hesitant to use terms like the toxic woman or toxic lady in the publicity for the show for exactly that reason. But I concluded. I needed to use them anyway, because otherwise people searching for information about the so-called toxic lady would not come across what appears to be the true explanation that humanizes her unless I used the search terms that they were going to be plugging into their Google machines.
0: That's right. Janelin on Facebook writes, I think this also inspired the Law and Order episode Second Opinion. It opens with a woman being treated in an ER only to have some of the doctors and nurses pass out because of the toxic fumes she exuded.
1: Yes, and several people pointed out that there was a Law & Order episode based on this. Unfortunately, I've never really seen more than a few episodes of that series, so I'm not as familiar with it as I am The X-Files.
0: Susan writes on Facebook, As an RN, I was particularly disturbed by this episode. If the meth precursor theory is correct, that poor RN inadvertently caused the death of an innocent person by running an IV bag filled with poison. If that were me, and I later found out, even though I know that I was in no way at fault, it would be hard for me to ever let it go. We trust what is in the bag, or vial, or package, etc., is truly what the label says it is. Disguising something toxic in this way seems like a different level of evil to me.
1: It really would be, and even though the meth cookers weren't intending this to happen, mislabeling meth precursors as you know saline solution or whatever, it 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 created a situation where exactly this kind of thing could happen.
0: Doreen writes on Facebook: "As a nurse myself, I would be extremely offended at the idea of mass hysteria. Also, good for them for refusing to let that be a reasonable explanation for this obvious failure somewhere in the hospital."
1: Yeah. And I agree. If I was on the medical staff in the ER and they said, oh, this is just mass hysteria, it's like, dude, I'm trained to handle emergencies. That's why I'm stationed in the emergency room.
0: Right. Scott Seal writes on YouTube. One thing I've learned from this podcast over the years is that there's always additional information out there that could turn any understanding of any event on its head. Well,
1: certainly the mysterious ones that we try to cover. Yeah, there is always uh, there's always more information and sometimes it will overturn one's understanding. And so it's it's good to check and see what's out there.
0: Steve Numerator on YouTube again writes, Jimmy and Dom play Holmes and Watson to transform an X-Files story into a Breaking Bad episode. Brilliant. (laughs) Thank you,
1: Steve Numerator. We're glad you enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, it definitely actually feels like something that could have been on Breaking Bad. So I agree with that. All right. So thank you, everyone, for your uh, mysterious feedback. Let's move on to talk about mysterious headlines. Jimmy, what do we have for headlines this week?
1: This time we have a science theme. Now, in some previous episodes, we've talked about how some of the cosmological constants that are numerical values that are thought to apply in equations, uh, physics equations all over the universe, actually may not be so constant. Uh, we t- we've talked previously about how one of them, alpha, also known as the fine structure constant, which is related to the speed of light, and may vary historically. At some points in history, it may have been higher. At others, it may have been lower. Well, there's a new story, a new study of the cosmos that suggests that Yes, okay, it looks like we do have some additional evidence of alpha varying throughout the cosmos, but not simply along the time axis. It looks like there's a a pole, a polarity to this, where on one side of the universe alpha is bigger and on the other side of the universe alpha is smaller. And uh there are other hints that the universe may have a polarity in this way. So check out this video. It's by Anton Petrov, who makes really nice videos. He's very cautious. He says, look, this, this doesn't mean we need to overturn the laws of physics. The study could be wrong. We need more studies to confirm this. But it is another piece of evidence that suggests that the constants that uh, we previously have regarded as truly constant may, in fact, vary. Hmm. The second thing, now, obviously, we've extended our senses with radio telescopes and things like that, so we can sense new aspects of the universe that we can't with the the traditional five senses. But we can also learn other sensing modalities, including echolocation. It is possible over a period of about 10 weeks for humans to learn how to do echolocation. Echolocation. And so we'll have a link to an article about that. You can read about how that works. And so uh, maybe we'll finally be able to answer philosopher Thomas Nagel's famous question, what is it like to be a
0: bat? Excellent. Very good. That's interesting. So that's going to do it for us for this time. We want to hear from you. What are your theories about the Son of Sam killings? We want you to uh, to let us know ahead of our next episode where we'll finish talking about this mystery. You can do so by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world. So Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next time,
1: we'll be looking at the evidence for whether David Berkowitz acted alone, who Sam really was, who else may have been involved, and what connection all this has to Satanism.
0: Folks, remember to like this episode on the Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World Facebook page, retweet it on Twitter, where we're again at MYS underscore world, and share it with uh, all of your friends who are interested in this type of discussion. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest.